Well, good morning to you all. It's responsive. Good morning. Good. Good. I, uh, my name is Stephen Parkin. I'm one of the members here at Redemption Hill, and I'm excited to get to share with you um, God's Word this morning. So we're going to be in Psalm 16. Feel free to turn over there, and some of you may be asking, well, it's Christmas time. Why are we ducking into the Psalms this morning? Um, good question. Well, last week, uh, we heard actually from Pastor Otto um, from Countryside. He came and preached to us, and he reminded us of the reason for the season, that it's Jesus Christ, and that in him we've received wonderful and precious gifts, gifts of mercy and grace. And this morning, we're going to look at another gift that we receive in Christ, um, and the gift that is actually a feeling, um, And this week we're going to look at what we are supposed to feel at this time of year. And uh, so we're going to look at um, joy this morning. Joy is the feeling um, that is a gift from God. We hang it on decorations um, and we wear Christmas sweaters that say it. And we even sang this morning Christmas carols that proclaim it. But um, at times it can be a struggle to actually feel joyful during the Christmas season. We tend to look at this time of year as a time to pack our schedules with fun, family, festive activities uh, for us to get together to have good times and make memories. Um, But what if this Christmas season your goal was to experience joy? We see in Scripture that both Mary and the wise men respond to the news of the coming of Jesus with jubilant rejoicing, with excitement and joy. What is the connection between the birth of Jesus and joy? How can we experience joy this Christmas season? Well, the days and weeks leading up to Christmas can actually stir up feelings that can be quite the opposite. There can be frustration, not finding that Christmas present for the right deal, or they're out of stock, or different feelings of frustration, or fear even, stress, disappointment, um, and even despair. And some of you... Uh, maybe going through those feelings even this morning. And, you know, the, those feelings that come along are, are feelings of the difficulties of life. And just because it's Christmas season doesn't mean that life stops, right? When it comes to issues of the heart, of emotions and affections, the Psalms is a great place for us to run, for us to go and seek to see how, how God directs our hearts and gives Good gifts of good emotions and feelings. So let's, let's look together at how God brings David from a place of feeling fearful to a point where David actually gets to experience unshakable joy and finds the source of that true joy. So our goal whenever we're reading and studying scripture is to try to get inside the head of the writer. Um, especially in the Psalms, we want to try to get inside the heart of the writer, to feel what they feel, to think what they think, to follow their reasoning. That way we can see the truth that they see and respond to it with spirit-empowered guidance. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into Psalm 16. God, we thank you this morning that you are a true and faithful God who we can trust. And we ask, God, this morning that you would preach your word to our hearts, that your spirit would be present and active, that it would cause us to respond to the truths that we hear this morning in a way that glorifies you, that causes our 
affections to be stirred to love you more. And uh, God, we're, we're excited to see what you're going to do, to hear from you. And um, we ask that you would just tear away any distractions, Lord, and help us to turn our attention to you. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We see here at the beginning, David starts out with a plea. David starts out with a prayer to God. He says, preserve me, save me, help me, I'm in need. What we don't know here at the start of the psalm is what from, right? That begs the question, if he needs to be preserved, what from? What is he afraid of? What is he scared of? We don't know yet. He doesn't say it right here at the beginning, but he asks God. He comes to him expectantly saying, God, help me. Save me. Preserve me. We'll have to suspend judgment for just a minute. We'll see it. We'll get there. But this plea, this prayer to God colors the entire psalm. So hang on to that. That's where he starts. That's where he is feeling this scared, fearful need for God to intervene. He says, preserve me. Then David moves forward. He moves forward by doing a couple things. He starts preaching to himself, and he starts praising God for who God is for him. And by the time we reach verse 8, David's plea is totally transformed. David's preaching and praise, his declaring and exalting God, continues in verse 1. He says, for in you I take refuge. He's seeking preservation from God, and he says, for. So because, God, I'm asking you for this because you are my safe place, my refuge, my stronghold. He's seeking God to preserve him, to be a a comfort to him, to be a savior to him, to intervene. And he says, God, I'm turning to you. You are my refuge. It's personal to him. Saying, I'm not going anywhere else. 
I'm not safe anywhere else. God, you alone are my refuge. So won't you please, God, preserve me because I'm running to you. I'm asking you. I'm trusting you. I'm depending on you. Preserve me, God. You alone are my refuge. And David moves forward and he says, I say to the Lord, Lord is in all caps, meaning Yahweh, the proper name for God, the God who brought them out of Egypt. He says to the Lord God, you are my Lord. This Lord is Adonai, powerful, master. He's submitting to him saying, God, you are my sovereign master. I submit to that. You, God, are sovereign over all things. But this isn't, just, this isn't just head knowledge for David. No, it's not just a theological truth. It's not just, God, you are sovereign. You control the outcome of all events. You know what's going to happen. You know what's going on in my life. He says, you are my Lord. You are my sovereign. The events going on in my life right now are not outside of your control. The events that went on this week, the inconveniences, we should not complain because God is our Lord. He is our sovereign. He's our master. He's aware. He knows what's going on. He says, Lord, you are my master. I submit to you. I want to obey you. I want to acknowledge that you are my master, my sovereign. I submit to you as my Lord. Continuing on, he also says, I have no good apart from you. Now we've seen that you are my refuge, you are my sovereign, my Lord, but here he says it differently. He says, God, you are my highest treasure. He doesn't just say, I have, I have good with you, God. He says, I have no good apart from you. You alone are my good. This is exclusive right? It's the highest and it's the most exclusive. God, you alone. I have no good apart from you. You are the only good I'm ever going to get. It's you alone, God. You are my highest treasure. And he wants to, he wants to express to God in praise how this affects his life practically, right? That's how he moves forward here. He wants to say, God, you are my highest treasure. And I want to talk about how that affects my relationships horizontally. So he moves on, he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He says, I, I have my greatest joy in the saints, in God's holy ones who he's set apart. God's people are the ones who give me the greatest joy in, in, on this earth, in this life. And he's not saying He's not saying this is in place of God. He's saying because of God, I enjoy these people the most, right? It's because they are God's people. He's saying these people, these saints, their joy is vested in you, God. And that's where my joy is. That's where my good is. And because we have this, this common good, I enjoy these people the most, in them is all my delight. I enjoy people because you are my highest treasure. I enjoy God's people because you are my highest treasure. It's interesting here, as, as a king, 
David had probably a lot of powerful friends. He knew a lot of powerful people. He doesn't say, God, my greatest delight is in the popular ones. It's not in the powerful ones. It's not in his army. It's not in his, in his armor. That's not where he finds his greatest delight. It's, it's in God's people. He moves forward again practically wanting to speak how God being his greatest treasure impacts his worship. He says in verse 4 that he's not going to run after any other God, right? I'm not going to spend time worshiping or even saying the name of another God because it's worthless. I love in Habakkuk when it talks about idolatry. The man who made an idol is going to ask this idol to do something for him. It has no breath in it. It's worthless, right? What gods do we turn to that we ask to satisfy us? David says, because, God, you are my greatest good, I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to waste my, my efforts and my energies Worshiping these other gods, I'm not even going to give them a thought. They're not worth it. They are worthless to me. And moving forward again, continuing on with God as his highest treasure, he not only, he wants to expound upon what this possession is that he has. This possession that is his greatest treasure. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion. Okay, David's got a spread. He's got a table set up with all these goodies, all these Christmas treats, right? And it's all laid out for him. It's a beautiful spread, and he picks the Lord, right? He says, this is, this is my portion. This is what I want. This is best. I want this. I don't want anything else. You can have it all. I don't want it. I want the Lord. The Lord is my portion and my cup. And he, he uh, remembers, he goes back and talks about God being his sovereign. That's what that phrase is, you hold my lot. So for us, God holds the dice of life, right? When they're cast, it's God who casts it and he controls the result. God is the one who holds my lot. And the result of these truths, he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Translation, I got it good, Right? David says, if God's in control and God is my highest treasure, he's my sovereign master, he's my refuge, my safe place, I got it good. <laughs> this is the best. This is as good as it's going to get. The lines have fallen. This, this area, this area of God as my, my highest treasure, this is great. Indeed, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. God is his inheritance. God is his greatest treasure. He doesn't stop there, though. He continues one more. And this is not just a tack on. This is interesting, actually. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Right? You think you peaked at God being my highest treasure, right? But he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. God, as his counselor, is not just another one in this list. It actually flips it all from 2D to 3D, right? God is not just a static refuge or a distant sovereign master 
or uh, a, a still treasure, but he's a counselor in all those ways, right? This is dynamic, okay? This is how God interacts. It's the means in which he interacts with us and shows grace, right? God is our refuge through counsel. When he counsels us, he convicts our heart to turn to him, right? He's our trusted counselor. We can seek him for refuge, and he's responsive through his word and through his spirit. God says in his word, he says, Come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an invitation to come to him. That's his counsel. I wanted to share a, a brief example of a way that God's been a refuge, a counselor to bring him as a refuge, as a sovereign master and Lord. And in my life recently, um, God's actually uh, blessed us this year with the birth of our second daughter, Primrose. And, um, you know, round two, I was like, you know, I was terrified the first time around, totally terrified. And God taught me to trust him. And I'm like, second time around, I've, God's built my faith in him. I'm going to trust in this time. It's, it's going to go well, and I can trust him that he's, he's going to control the results. And um, so baby's blood pressure started to go down. Brady's awesome, and we get the baby out by God's grace. And um, the baby's with us, and um, Brady's blood pressure starts to go down. I always cry at this part. It's okay. So... You know it's bad. I don't, I'm not a doctor, not a nurse. Not, I can't, I'll probably pass out if there's blood because I can't handle medical things. But the nurses called her the 60-30. Was that what it? 60-30? Which is really bad. So her blood pressure totally dropped. It went to 60 over 30. And uh, we went from about two to three nurses and a midwife to like 12 people in the room. And uh, they're getting blood prepped in case we need a blood transfusion and She's feeling like she's going to pass out. and So I'm feeling this fear, right? I am a person that's prone to jump into paralysis by analysis. Matter of fact, I have a black belt in that degree. And um, so in a split second, my mind's thinking, I got two girls. I mean, I can't do this by myself. I mean, what if she goes? What if, what if, Right? I'm jumping down all these avenues, and God, who's my counselor, brought this to mind. He said, I got her. That's it. He said, I got her. What a relief to me in that moment. Right? I'm, I'm in a hospital. I'm not asking the doctors. I'm not trying to seek to understand the situation and bring in experts. I was God as my counselor intervened in my heart and said, "I have Brady." And then he reminded me of his sovereignty. He brought to mind this truth. He said, "She will not breathe another breath unless I give it to her." Right? That's not just true in a hospital. That's always true. He provides every breath. He is sovereign over her. He knows everything that's going on, and he is providing every breath. He has counted them. He knows every single one. He is sovereign. And he taught me in that moment that he is my greatest treasure. 
because he counsels me, he provides for me, and he gives all good things. So God as our counselor is dynamic, right? It brings these truths to bear in our heart, makes it real, it makes it a relationship because God intervenes with his counsel to do mighty things and to remind us of these necessary truths, right? David's not recounting truths that are good for him. It's not a personal truth in the sense that it's um, exclusive. These are truths about God that have impacted his life, but they're always true of God, always true. David was preaching to himself in a, in a time of need, in a time of fear. He's preaching to himself and praising God, saying, God, you are my refuge, my safe place. God, you are my sovereign master. God, you are my highest treasure, and in all these things, I can trust you to be my counselor. I can trust you. You are my trusted counselor. So the result here, we, we kind of get to see a glimpse of it. He's building up all these truths, right? He's preaching to himself. He's reminded of these truths about who God is for him. And look at the result here in verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This is no longer a plea. This is confidence, right? This is a declaration of truth that God has brought him to confidence saying, I don't have to fear and tremble anymore. I'm unshakable because of who God is for me. David is able to have confidence. This is actually like a, a military stance when he says, he's at my right hand. That's the weak side. You got a shield on your left in the military. You're guarded on that side, but you're you're scared of attacks on the right. He says, God is at my right hand. I don't have to be afraid. He's going to protect me. He's got this. I'm trusting him, and he is there. My confidence is in the Lord. Now we're, we're switching to a point. I know I said we're going to talk about joy, so we're at the therefore. Whenever we hit the therefore, we're going up. Okay, we've been escalating, we've started with a plea, and he's been preaching and exalting and praising God, and he's come up to this point of confidence, and he doesn't even peek there. He goes a step up. He says, therefore, I am glad. I have joy because of this, right? He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. That's, that's a great picture of joy, right? We're not talking about happiness. We're not talking about circumstances that put a smile on our face. We're talking about soul-satisfying joy. He says, my heart is glad. It boils over into my whole being rejoices. And we're going to see here, we're going to see here why he was afraid. Why was David scared? Why was he asking for preservation? I think we get the answer here in, in verse um, second half of 9 and 10. It says, my flesh, my flesh also dwells secure. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. God's comforted David in his time of need and David's need 
His need, his problem was, I don't want to die. Right? He says, I don't want death to end it all. God, I love you. You are my refuge. You are my sovereign, my my safe place, my trusted counselor, my highest treasure. And God, I don't want death to end it all. Death is my problem, and I don't want it to stop. I want to I live. But in joy and in confidence, he knows that God is the solution for him, for his death problem. He says, I don't want to die. And I can thank you, God, that my flesh dwells secure. In verse 11, we see the source of David's joy. He says, you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He says, God, being with you is what gives me joy. Your presence is where my joy is stored. I have no good apart from you. He could also say here, I have no joy apart from you. In your presence, Lord, I want to be with you forever. You make known the path of life. I want to be with you forever. Well, for those of you that maybe got your ears tickled in in verse 10, it's a familiar verse because we actually see it in the New Testament a couple times. It's actually prophetic. Um, But whenever we, we come to prophecy in the Old Testament, we don't want to just jump to the New Testament and take the key and say, shove it in the door and fling it open and say, look, this is what this means. That's great. But we want to give David a moment here, right? What does David mean? What is David saying here? What does he know? Let's, let's take a minute and analyze the door frame. Look at the door and see from David's perspective what his hope is in, what his joy is in in this, um, this prophecy. We actually see in 2 Samuel Chapter 7, the prophet Nathan is actually speaking here. He's speaking to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. Now, this is God's prophet. This is his mouthpiece. This is God telling David, you're going to die. You're going to lie down in the grave and you're going to decay. You're going to die. So what what could David mean here? What could he possibly mean by saying, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption? Why is this the result of joy, the fore of joy, the the support to it? What What is he trying to say here? Continuing on, after he's told that he will die, he says, the prophet Nathan says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's what David knows. He knows God has promised 
a forever king. Right? There's kings that come, they reign, and they die. They reign and they die. They get a successor. But God's promised him a forever king. And David knows this forever king, he's not going to have the same problem I have. He's not going to have this death problem. I, I don't know how, but I know that God is promising a forever king who will not die. And I, I don't exactly know how these things all come together, but I know this promise, this king, this Messiah that's coming to reign forever, that I have joy because he's solving the death problem that I'm afraid of. That's what David's saying here. He's saying, he's speaking of his descendant, his descendant who he would call his Lord. And the reason we can say that is because in Acts 2, when Peter's preaching, he's talking of referencing this passage. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Right? David died. He perished. Therefore, speaking of David, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see, his hope was based in a promise, a gospel promise. A promise of resurrection from the dead that would solve his problem. So I have a question for you. Have you ever experienced fullness of joy that comes from being personally reconciled relationally with God? There's a there's some good news and some bad news. Bad news first. You this morning have a death issue. You have this death problem. And you've got another problem. You've got a presence problem. You've got a problem because you are not right with God. We see back in Genesis... God had everything set up. It was all good and perfect. We've been preaching through, Jay's been preaching through Genesis. And we see there that man sinned. They said, I want to be God. I want to be my own master. And God graciously gives a promise. He says, one day, I'm going to send a redeemer who's going to defeat death. But he had to make that promise because there was a curse, right? Sin brought upon a curse that brought death. And with that death, a separation, right? Death is not only physical, but there's spiritual death in separating us from God forever. Both of those pieces are in the curse. If you recall, Adam and Eve, they were kicked out, right? They were given a promise, cursed, and kicked out. You can't be here. We got a problem. I'm holy. And you're tainted. You're broken. You can't be here. The good news is this promise in Christ. And the joy that comes with the Christmas season is that we sang it this morning. Jesus is our Emmanuel. 
right? That means God with us. He came. He came on this earth as a baby. The God who created, spoke everything into existence, learning to breathe and learning to talk. He came as flesh, taking on mankind's flesh. So the perfect God-man comes. But the presence issue, God being present on earth, that doesn't solve the death issue, right? So he had to solve both. God came as the Son, Jesus Christ, and he came and he died on a cross, paying for your sin. But it didn't end there, right? The hope and the joy that David had was in Jesus' resurrection. He conquered the grave, solving the death problem so that we don't have to have that be the end. We can trust in God forevermore and enjoy life with him forevermore when we trust in the promise of the gospel, when we say, Jesus has solved my problem. As John said, he's my advocate. He pleads with God for me. God looks at him and says, I'm pleased. And he's given us that righteousness so that we can, too, have God's pleasure. We, too, can enjoy true, lasting, everlasting joy with our Father forevermore. So there's good news and bad news. Are you satisfied with the temporary joys of this world? I can tell you you're not. Scripture says you're not. Scripture says there's a a God-sized hole in your soul. Only he can fill it. Will you trust him? Will you go to him so he can solve your issues of death and relationship with him? He alone can solve it. Trust him. I have another question this morning. John kind of touched on it in his address this morning to us in prayer as well. Is is your life distinguished by God's presence or his absence? You may say, well, wait a second. Wait a second, Stephen. God's omniscient. God's omnipresent too. So I said the wrong one first. That's why I switched to omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? That's not what we're talking about, right? We know that God is everywhere. This presence is a personal relationship that is clean, that is right, that doesn't have sin in the way. Is your life distinguished by God's presence? What's in the way? What other gods, what other temporary things are you turning to to try to satisfy Confess those. Get those out of the way. Enjoy joy in this life. Enjoy God's presence now. This is not just a forevermore when I get there. I'm just going to kick the can right now and just suffer through. There's joy now. Don't wait. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, the world is famishing for a lack of the knowledge of God. That's saving knowledge of God. But the church, the church is famishing for want of his presence. How long have we settled for mediocre? Don't settle. Throw it out. Whatever it is, get it out of the way. 
we're more content to pursue our careers and, and, and understanding our, all these good things, our wives, our children, our friends. How often do you study God's word so that you know him, so that he is your refuge, so that you turn to him in trust, so that he is your personal sovereign, the one who you submit to every day, so that he is your treasure and counselor. Seek him first. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, all these things will be added unto you. True joy is found in prioritizing and praising and exalting and seeking God first. The blessing of God's presence comes from trusting God with your life. Let's remember with David that trusting God completely brings the blessing of confident joy. Let's pursue, let's make our goal this week, this Christmas, this coming year, to have confident joy by enjoying God's presence. Let's pray together. God, we confess confidently from your word that you are the source of true delight. God, you are the one who holds all of our joy. God, we we need eyes to see you. We're dependent on your grace and your love to open our eyes to see you more clearly, God. We ask this morning for for those who are in a hindered relationship with you, God, who have sin between you and them, that they would not walk out with these issues undealt with, unaddressed, but that they would, through your Spirit's conviction, come to you needy, come to you crying out, help because you are eager to save. And you are ready and capable to do so, God. We love you. We thank you for all that you are to us. And pray, God, that you would teach us to love you more, to seek you, and to find our joy in you forevermore. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.